What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of the NC Raw podcast. Tonight's guest is my man, Mr. Jeremy Sharp. Jeremy is an outreach worker for the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. He is the man on the ground doing um, the needle exchange program and other harm reduction efforts here in the western counties of North Carolina. Uh, Jeremy also served on the board of directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy, as well as be, he was involved in develop, the development and passing of Georgia's 911 Good Samaritan Policy. It was an awesome conversation. The dude is in tune with all harm reduction efforts. Um, it was a fabulous conversation. I enjoy talking to him. I learned a ton from him, and I look forward to growing a friendship and relationship with him as well as supporting his work uh, both personally and professionally. So give some love to Mr. Jeremy Sharp. Living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God in my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life. Is going through different intervals, finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I am the rival expected to be exceptional, and I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional. I am incredible, Leo conventional, and you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. What is up, Jeremy Sharp? Hey, good to be here. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for coming over. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've heard a lot about you and um, enjoy the conversation that we had just before we started. So, Hopefully you heard good things. I heard wonderful things. That's why I <laughs> threw you an invite, brother. That's why I threw you an invite. Um, however, I'm looking forward to picking your brain and getting to know you a little more. Cool. Um, you're from North Georgia. Yeah, originally uh, from a little town called Dahlonega. Um, yeah, I moved up here about a year ago to take a job right after I graduated school. So I've been up in the mountains for a good 15, 16 years now. Cool. And uh, I don't miss the hustle and bustle of Atlanta whatsoever. Yeah. How far away from Atlanta were you? About an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Okay. So it's close enough, but 
far enough away. Close so. enough to go enjoy the festivities on the weekend, but not too close to like get caught up in the traffic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Atlanta's growing and it's slowly encroaching on us, but you know, we're, we're holding out up there in Dahlonega, so. <laughs> I hear you. Um, so you moved here to take a job. Yeah, I uh, currently work with the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, which is based out of Wilmington. A lot of folks are familiar with them. Uh, they've been an advocacy group here in North Carolina for about 20 years. And uh, there's a variety of programs that they work with. Um, some of them are uh, based with law enforcement, law enforcement-assisted diversion. Um, I myself run a syringe exchange program. Um, that's one of the big things. Uh, North Carolina harm reduction is known for... Um, they're known for passing laws, legislative, uh, legislative action in the Capitol. Uh, they helped uh, write and develop medical amnesty policy. Uh, they wrote the syringe exchange program law, and uh, they're currently working on a bill to uh, ban the box. So when an applicant uh, tries to get a job, they don't have to put down the fact that they've been arrested. Uh, they wait until the interview process. And that's pretty important because, um, you know, a lot of times when uh, somebody just looks good on paperwork or when you just see the paper, um, you see a felony, a drug conviction, something like that, you're just going to nix that person, even though that might be a very well-qualified candidate. So that's a very important piece of legislation that the uh, organization is currently working on. Uh, we're also trying to work against uh, drug-induced homicide laws. So if me and you uh, are, say, using together, and I went down the road and I got the bag for you, um, I'm actually uh, a murderer, uh, according to this particular law, if it's passed if you were to pass away from it, even though, you know, most people that do drugs uh, distribute drugs to their friends. So um, we're really afraid with this particular law that um, we're going to see a lot more incarceration. Uh, we're also afraid that our medical amnesty policy will be eroded and that people would be afraid to reach out for help in a drug and alcohol situation because they're now facing a murder charge. So those are just a couple of things the organization's currently working on. There's about 20 or so employees uh, with North Carolina Harm Reduction, and uh, we're all throughout the state. Um, there's about three of them that work with me here in Haywood, and uh, we've produced some pretty amazing results over the last year. I'm really proud of my colleagues. Awesome. Um, since you went there, this was on my radar to ask you about. Okay. But we'll just let's just start right here. Cool. Uh, death by distribution. That's what you're talking about. Yep. It's the new bill. It passed. Or um, they're working on it. So. I think it just got introduced a few weeks ago. Okay. And, um, you know, the Prosecutors Association, the Sheriff's Association, two very powerful lobbies are advocating for this. Um, and they'd actually introduced a bill last year, but it was shot down by the Medical Association here in North Carolina because, according to the language, uh, doctors were actually drug dealers. And uh, the doctor stepped in and said, oh, hold on one second. You know, those prescription pills that I gave somebody or distributed or wrote the script for, you know, uh, they had a problem with the language. So it, it didn't uh, go too far in the legislature last year. It's one of those, like, kind of tricky things where, like, if you look at it, like the average lay person in this community, right, mm -hmm. were to see on the headlines of WLOS, uh, death by distribution and we're targeting drug dealers right it could get some support right oh. like it, it it has some support um i saw i saw all the headlines last week or the week before when the bill was introduced um and so i brought it up in class in conversation i mm -hmm. threw it out there just as a as a way to gauge how some of my classmates felt but also how my instructors felt mm -hmm. and i was completely shocked by the response that I got. Mm -hmm. um, 
there wasn't one person that was opposed to it immediately. Like their gut reaction was like, oh yes, I think that's a great thing. And I just kind of like sat back and kind of like observed how people responded. Um, and it's like one of those things where like, uh, without looking at it completely objectively and saying like what type of true impacts could this type of bill have on people like you and me? Like I'm a former drug user. Have I ever purchased drugs for a friend? Absolutely, right? That totally could be me, could have been me um, facing those types of charges. And yeah, I totally can empathize with those who who have lost loved ones to overdoses. But a bill like this, we learned from the war on drugs, right? Like, um, it, will a bill like this remove harmful drugs from our communities? Probably not, right? Well, my response, my first response is, if jails worked, they'd stop building them. And, you know, that might be a radical response, but I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, you know, the biggest problem I have with the language in this law is it does go after the lower level consumers. Um, there's no distinction between myself and Pablo Escobar. Um, you know, if, you know, I might be a little less radical than some of the people that I work with in that, you know, sometimes I look at drug dealing as a predatory action. Um, but when I go down the road and get something for my friend and we both take it and he passes away, you know, there was no malice in that. We just simply got some bad stuff. And now, according to the law, I'm a murderer. And, you know, that's just going to result in increased incarceration rates. Um, I don't think it's going to solve the problem whatsoever. Um, when you think about it, you know, there's various reasons that people get into using drugs. You know, there's social reasons, economic reasons. Uh, a lot of people are dealing with adverse childhood experiences, their parents got divorced, whatever it is. And the key to helping reduce addiction within our communities is to find ways in which we can really work through those issues. And a law like this that's, you know, cut and dry, uh, if you sell drugs, get drugs for a friend, it's murder, um, in my opinion, is going to make things worse. Um, I think, again, people are going to be afraid to reach out for help. Um, we've done a lot of work over the last five or six years in building bridges between drug-using communities and police with expanded naloxone policies. You know, cops, a lot of times when they sign up for the job, uh, they sign up to be heroes. When I put Narcan in their hands and they run into a house and they save somebody's life, that dude's a hero. Um, but I think people are going to be very afraid to call police. They're going to be afraid to co cooperate with them. And um, I think it's going to exacerbate the issue. Um, another thing, too, is um, we're actually to a point, um, North Carolina has you know, one of the highest increases in overdose rates. Um, over the last year, we've had 3,000-plus reversals with our Narcan that we've distributed in North Carolina. And our preliminary results are showing that we're actually um, reducing overdose rates here in North Carolina. We've gotten a lot of Narcan out over the last year. And, um, you know, I'm kind of afraid that if they pass this and we keep doing what we're doing and the overdose rates go down, you know, a lot of the credit's going to go to legislative pieces that have actually made things worse. Um, again, that kind of contradicts what I said in that, you know, there might be higher increased 
overdose rates because people are afraid to reach out to the police, to the paramedics that carry the Narcan. But, um, you know, we have to look at this as an ebb and flow. And uh, I think we've reached our pinnacle, or we did at least last year. So um, I support policies that are evidence-based. And this um, policy to me seems like something that belongs in the 1980s. You know, it's something that Nancy Reagan would be supporting. Um, not that Nancy Reagan's a bad person, but this just say no attitude, lock them up, throw away the key. Um, we've been doing this for 30, 40 years, and it hasn't produced results. It's actually produced the current epidemic that we're currently in. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified that this law will pass and it'll be picked up by other states. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good people that use drugs and, um, Again, I just think it's going to make things a lot worse overall. Where did this bill come from? Because, we, like you said, we, you mentioned we've made made so many across so many bridges and building and mending relationships with law enforcement. And so, what? How did it get in, initiated? Well, um, it's uh, been initiated by the prosecutors' association, from my understanding. And you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, again, when somebody goes to jail, they don't receive treatment. Um, very often they're going through a process where, uh, they're receiving a lot of trauma, there's abuse, there's assault, and, um, it's just an overall bad experience for people. So sending people to a place that's bad, um, I don't think is going to have good results. Yeah. Are there ways where we could, um, adjust or change the way that our good Samaritan laws are written to kind of protect the individuals that we're talking about right now so that it, if this bill does pass, that it will solely target drug dealers? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk of increasing the immunities and having a more defined, I guess, uh, good Samaritan law in that we would raise the threshold for drug possession um, for the immunities. So um, right now, in, in, in North Carolina, um, it's over a gram of hard substance is when you lose the immunity for uh, medical amnesty. And the way that it's worded, too, if I remember correctly, is that it's up to officer discretion after that. So the officer has the choice of whether or not to arrest somebody. So To roll the dice, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a lot of different things that go in. You know, is this person a person of color? Is it somebody who's been going in and out of arrest? Do the police have a history with them? Or is it a kid from the suburbs? So, you know, that discretion, you know, it's up in the air. Um, and having a clear, clearly defined immunity, you know, and increasing the threshold would definitely um, strengthen our medical amnesty policy and encourage more people to reach out for help. You could tweak the current legislation um, and make it to where you have to be like a big time kingpin, but developing that threshold, developing those wording, that particular wording, and uh, you know, getting the, a prosecutor to convict somebody who's a, a bigger drug dealer, it's going to be hard. Um, so currently, there is a drug-induced homicide law, but the prosecutors have to prove malice. So that's me you're sleeping with my girlfriend or, you know, something crazy like that, and I give you a bad bag. Well, I didn't post it on Facebook that I did this for a reason. It's really hard to prove malice. 
And right now, with the, learning, uh, with the wording with this particular piece of legislation that's up before uh, the General Assembly here, um, anybody who gets anybody, anything, it could result in a murder charge. Could fall under that. Now, one of the things that concerns me about it is I could see... Um, I could see an individual being charged with this crime and then tying up our court system and costing financial dollars and then struggling to produce sufficient evidence to prove that that individual was the one that provided the drugs. Like, how do they anticipate being able to prove where the drugs came from? Well, if I were to be arrested for shooting somebody for murder, it would cost the system about $426,000 just for that trial. Now, that doesn't include the price for incarceration and all that good stuff. But um, what was your question? How, how are they going to connect the dots to the person that actually provided the drugs? Um, generally, what they do is during the investig investigatory piece, um, the first thing they go for is the cell phone. Phone records. Mm -hmm. Phone records. And then, you know, if it's a group of people around and they're all facing murder charges... Well, the first thing they're going to do is tell them roll somebody, uh huh. And um, yeah, that's that's what's going to happen. So, what what do you see? Where do you see this thing landing? What would be say? What would be worst case scenario for? Um, well, in your point of view, and then maybe best case scenario. If, if we get a very strict law. Um, you know, that's a very worst case scenario where, you know, it clearly defines that anybody who gets the drugs for somebody else is guilty of murder. And there's so many problems with the illegal market. You know, you never know what you're getting. Um, you know, there's no malice for that. You know, we both have 20 bucks. I go down the road because, you know, that's my old college roommate. And I know him a little bit better. And, uh, you know, we both take it. And my tolerance is a little bit higher than you pass away. Again, I'm a murderer. Um, you know, kind of a middle ground would for there to be some sort of uh, um, language written into the bill to where it really goes after the drug kingpins. Um, the best case scenario is um, the legislature doesn't want to pass this and they want to strengthen our medical amnesty laws. Um, you know, I deal with drug overdoses every day and um, I think this is probably one of the worst pieces of legislation that can happen to us this year. And that's why it caught me by such surprise, just because like the harm reduction efforts, specifically in this state, have been so um, leaning towards the drug users and supporting them and like cultivating and building relationships with the individuals who are currently using drugs, um, from law enforcement diversion programs to needle exchange to... Um, fentanyl testing like i've seen so much in the last few years that like this thing just kind of like caught me off guard you know somebody that's not really involved in policy and looking at like what's on the table all the time like i find it very confusing as to like why all of a sudden um like i said it's, it's ebb and flow um and then i think especially in republican dominated states um a lot of these more extreme views over the last two or three years have kind of uh, gained a more solid foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, that might be some of it, too. Could it be in a response to that heavy increase in overdoses? Um, I would think so. I would think that has something to do with it. I would imagine there's a lot of political pressure to solve this issue. 
um, you know, as a legislature who develops a piece of legislation and it turns into a correlation for reduced overdose rates, you know, I can go around town and, you know, tap my own horn. Yeah. Um, you know, granted, it's being developed by, I believe, the Prosecutors Association. And like I said before, you know, they're trying to send everybody to jail. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that that's, before. That's their job. <laughs> right? Well, you know, a lot of times with prosecutors, you know, it's like a batting average. You know, I'm, you know, Willie Mays or, or whomever and uh, or whoever. And, you know, I get paid based on how many hits I get or how many home runs. Um, you know, that's how prosecutors are judged is on their conviction rates. You're a baseball, you're a Braves fan, man? Dude, I love Braves. <laughs> I, but I could totally almost see this thing backfiring in that, like, they're going to bring charges on somebody and then not be able to prove guilt. Um, it's possible. Um, but, you know, I see it more so as a leverage piece for police investigation. Um, you know, now we've got a group of kids you know, let's say at Western Carolina here, you know, they're 19, 20 years old. Um, they separate them, put them in an interrogation room, and they tell them they're all going to jail for years and years and years. And that, for the police, is a tool to leverage to get who the real drug suppliers were. Mm -hmm. How would you suggest somebody learn about these policies? Like, is there a website, a place to go, a place to kind of study this type of information? Because like I mentioned, like the initial gut reaction of the my instructors and my classmates were like in full support of it. I saw local law enforcement who are have identified themselves as recovery allies posting on Facebook in support of it. It completely shocked me. <laughs> um, it doesn't shock me whatsoever because um, most people haven't lived through it and they don't really know what it is. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's a tool for law enforcement. So they're, they're looking forward to it. Um, if somebody were wanting to learn about these types of legislative pieces, they could vig uh, visit North Carolina Harm Reduction's website, nchc.org, and click on, I believe, the Laws tab. And it'll have a list of uh, legislative pieces that have passed in the past. And um, it should have a link to some of the legislation that we're working on right now. Um, if not, you can just do a Google search. Um, there's also a girl named Tessie Castilla. Um, she uh, used to work with us, and she's kind of gone on to do her own things. She's actually been our legislative advocate in the Capitol. Um, if you were to search her name, uh, a multitude of pieces would come up. I believe most of them that she's written is are through uh, uh, The Fix, which is a recovery-oriented uh, Decent publication. I know a few people that write, write for them. Yeah, they do good work, and, um, you know, Tess is an amazing advocate, and um, she puts it puts it a uh, pen to paper better than I could ever describe. So yeah. I, I would suggest looking her up. <laughs> I spent some time just reflecting on this whole conversation throughout the week, without doing all that research that you just described. Just kind of mm -hmm. like thinking about my personal experience surrounding um, this topic, and like my initial uh, train of thought was, I went back to 2010 when my cousin passed away from an overdose in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was living in Tampa, Florida and um, the opioid heroin scene hadn't really hit down there. It was kind of like pre pill mills on every corner down mm -hmm. there in Florida. And I can remember getting that phone call and um, really questioning like thinking about like what, what happened and what went down in this particular situation. And it was like the perfect storm. Like, 
Um, they didn't call 911. They tried to take her to the hospital instead of calling 911 where she could have gotten potentially received Narcan. Um, they didn't drive directly to the closest hospital. They, you know, took a different route or whatever. But my initial response back then in 2010 was like, where'd she get the stuff from? Mm -hmm. You know, and I was in, like, I spent a lot of time like thinking about like this exact scenario, kind of like a victim mentality, right? Like, why did this happen? How did this happen? You know, looking for, my mind wanted to find somebody to blame. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's our natural response to situations like this, but generally like any type of traumatic situation like we want to point the finger at somebody somebody needs to pay right um but if, if you like take a step back and look at it from um the point of view of exactly what you described so far is that like five ten fifteen years later like i could have been that guy right like i was always buying bags of cocaine for a big party for my friends and you know what i mean mm -hmm. and like I always had probably more on me than the, um, than the good Samaritan law protects, you right. know? So like I easily, I'm looking for, a, I'm looking for some, my mind's looking for somebody to pl place the blame in the situation with my cousin who passed. However, only a few years later, like I totally could have been that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, I thought a lot about this that like, Back then when I was using drugs, like the fentanyl wasn't out in the streets. Like I would be lucky if I would have made it out today, mm -hmm. you know, and I spent so much time, so much, so much time and effort creating these resentments towards whoever it was, mm -hmm. but it, it, are they really the person to blame? It probably was a close friend of hers that got her the drugs like nine times out of 10 it is. Um, also another drug user, like, like we've talked about tonight, does that person deserve to be charged with murder? Tying it back to your, um, ban the box at the beginning. Like, um, I feel so privileged that I was never charged with a felony and so many people that I interact with. So like, we're talking about not only charging somebody with murder, but like, putting this baggage on, on them that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their lives. When you look at it, they're doing the same thing that our loved one, that we are looking to place blame on their death on somebody that our loved one was doing. They're doing the same behavior, the same action, you know? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, our ultimate goal is to reduce the harms associated with drug use as a harm reductionist, you know, with our organization. And, um, you know, if you charge somebody with murder, no matter what, it's not going to bring that person back. And our perception is now it's going to make it more difficult for those people to reach out for help. They're going to be more afraid of law enforcement. So, and that's what gets me is that we've 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 put so much effort in cultivating relationships with law law enforcement. And like here locally, we have like very healthy relationships with them that I like I see this being a potential barrier in all of this effort that we've previously done yeah I mean I'm terrified of it I've, I've been working on this stuff for five years and um, you know it's almost like it's gonna fade away um, a lot of the progress that we've made especially in bridging those gaps with law enforcement 
Um, and when you talk to them too, they'll, they'll tell you things. We can't arrest our way out of this issue. We need to, you know, have more policies that support and don't punish. Yet you're at the Capitol advocating for these policies or going around town posting things on Facebook about how you should support them. It just kind of seems like maybe some of that talk is lip service. Yeah, it's like we've we've worked together side by side at various types of events and programs and services to where um, we've mutually speaking, we've kind of earned each other's trust. And now it seems like that trust is kind of being removed from the conversation. I was shocked when I saw that post on Facebook. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to say it, say it right here in front of everybody, <laughs> but I was, I was completely shocked when I saw that. Yeah. It's, it stinks. It's the only way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. Now, um, coming from Georgia, you worked a lot on policy and kind of harm reduction type stuff in Georgia. It is was there is there a difference in the type of work that's being done here and the type of work that's being done out in Georgia? Um, I would say that um, the police here in North Carolina are a lot more altruistic. Um, there is a lot more support for harm reduction. Uh, you have police at recovery rallies. Um, so I think you guys have a. I came to North Carolina because there's a lot more support for it. Um, we have a better medical amnesty policy. It's actually known as the gold standard throughout the U.S. Georgia? Georgia's, uh -huh. yeah. And uh, basically, we uh, North Carolina passed their law, and we took North Carolina's law, and we made it better. You know, okay. It's like the BSAF commercials. <laughs> we didn't make the law. We just made it better. And you were involved in that process? Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, got involved. I met a dude named Robert Childs at a bar in New Orleans that didn't have a name. And uh, actually sat down with him, had a 12-course meal for free. Um, interesting story how I met Robert. But anyways, um, he let me on to the fact that Georgia was working on a law. So um, he told me to call my editor and get a story in. And uh, I called the editor of the local newspaper, and they ended up putting me on the front page. Well, I kind of took that momentum, and I built up support on six different universities in Georgia. Uh, we did things like phone lobbying. We did events on campus. Uh, we got in the newspapers, and then we went to the legislature and probably talked to 50, 60 different legislative uh, peoples of the legis legislative members of the General Assembly. Spoke before a couple of legislative councils, committees, and um, you know it was a coalition. We played a part and we supported what was going on in uh, you know the legislature, and uh, we worked under a group called Georgia Overdose Prevention. And basically, it was made up of uh, moms and family members and friends who have lost their friends to overdose. And um, you know, I grew up around Atlanta, and I tell folks I basically lost a generation to people to overdose. And uh, the common denominator in all these drug deaths is they were at a party. They were around a group of people who didn't call for help. Um, lost a good friend named Austin. It was his 21st birthday. And um, he had a birthday party for him. Had alcohol, a um, couple different pharmaceuticals, and uh, Austin turned purple on him. So what did they do? They threw him in a shower, and uh, they let him sleep it off. By the time somebody checked in on him, um, he was dead. They called 911. It was a rural county. By the time the ambulance got there, he'd been passed. He'd passed for an hour and a half. And, um, you know, when we were advocating for these laws, um, we had so many people come up and tell us similar stories. Uh, the story you know, that I just shared was very similar to that. I'm telling you. And, um, 
you know, that's the thing about it is in each of these counties, we've recorded hundreds and hundreds of naloxone reversals administered by police. You know, these cops are running in, and in a county like Jackson or Macon or Haywood, you know, there's only a couple ambulances around. And, uh, you know, there's more cops. There's cops, you know, in different precincts and stuff like that. So very often, they're the very first people at the scene of an overdose. So having them, them equipped uh, with Narcan, it just makes sense. Um, there's a lady back in Haywood named Jean, and she claims that she can train a monkey to use Narcan. Not saying that police are monkeys or anything like that, but it's very easy for somebody to use. You just squirt it up their nose. It brings them back. And, um, yeah, I mean, those medical amnesty policies save lives. Um, in the county that I was working in, when we passed our law, in 2013, there was 84 calls for help. In 2014, the year the law passed, it had risen to 396. <sighs> so, you know, that's conducive of a couple things. You know, the opioid epidemic's in full swing. But most importantly, people are not afraid to reach out for help. You know, there's a couple different groups in the county that were going around educating people on universities and high schools and the drug-using communities and letting them know that, hey, the good, the good news, you know, we're spreading the good news. You won't get into help if you're just using drugs and you call, call 911. And, um, you know, I think 49 of the 50 states now have some sort of medical amnesty policy. And uh, when you look at places like Boston or, you know, places like Ohio, these policies are used constantly. Um, so, you know, having those erode away, um, I think, can be very perverse. Um, it's also futile, and we're never going to solve this issue by arresting people. And um, not only is it futile, but um, we can cause a lot of harm by removing these policies. Um, like you mentioned before, there's been so much progress that's been made by law enforcement. And, uh, you know, the law enforcement officers and officials that are, you know, advocating for recovery, for harm reduction, you know, to me, they're heroes. But um, this particular law will negate a lot of that work again. Mm -hmm. So what is, why is there resistance in implementing a law or making adjustments to our current current law to make it similar to what you guys did in Georgia? Like, where is the resistance? Um, you know, I, I haven't been on the legis I haven't been at the general assembly to hear uh, verbatim what's going on, but, um, you know, what they're saying is, well, we're giving you guys Narcan. So why do you need, we're, we're paying for Narcan. So, yeah, you know, and they do, you know, we get a lot of money for Narcan and we distributed over a hundred thousand kits in the last five or six years. And, uh, you know, most of these 99% of it go to people who use drugs, um, that's kind of the deal with the devil, I guess, is, well, you're getting Narcan and you can save lives, so don't necessarily worry about this. At least that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to get into the mindset of the people who are advocating for this particular legislation, and um, I, I guess that they believe arresting people and putting them in jail, that fear of arrest um, could be beneficial um, in reducing overdoses. But like I said before, we've been trying to arrest our way out of this issue for 40, 50 years. And to me, the definition, you know, if you look it up, of insanity is repetition of the same thing over and over again. Um, I think that we should look at these policies, medical amnesty and locks and access policies, 
and see that they do work. They do remove the fear of arrest. Um, they do build relationships with police. They do turn cops into heroes. And we should build off of that. We should strengthen our law. But, um, you know, I've spoken with a couple legislate people in, the, in, in legislative committees, and uh, the two or three people that I've spoken with, I think, are no longer bill sponsors for this. Mm. So, you know, maybe it is taking it one step at a time, one legislative member at a time, and really um, allowing people who have used drugs, who use drugs, who have gone through the criminal justice system to tell their stories. Hey, you know, I'm just a regular guy, but at one point in time, I got drugs for my friend. I'm not Pablo, you know, Pablo Escobar or George Young or whoever. You know, I was just a regular guy going down the road and getting the stuff. And, um, you know, like I said before, the problem with the illegal market is you never know what you're getting. Um, and right now, 90% of the dope that we test contains fentanyl in it. Um, it's in the cocaine. It's in the methamphetamines. Um, it's pressed in prescription pills. So in reality, you know, people are playing Russian roulette. And the thing is, the fear of arrest has never deterred somebody from using drugs. It's just made using the drugs a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Um how can an average member of our community let their voice be heard that they don't agree with these policies? Well, you know, there's simple things like Facebook posts and stuff like that. But if you really uh, disagree with these policies, you have to remember your police, your sheriff, uh, your legislative members, they all work for you. This is a democracy. We elect them. We pay taxes. We put them in office. So... If a group of people from Jackson County reaches out to the state rep to the senator from here and lets them know that, hey, these policies, I believe, are going to be extremely detrimental. I think it's going to make stuff worse. And this is why. This is my personal story. This is the story of my friend. These are the things that my generation went through, or these are the things that I went through. Um, when we get before our legislative members and we tell those stories, we change hearts and minds every single time. Beautiful. We need to connect, man. We need to, we need to do, we need to like get this message out there for real. Like let's brainstorm. Later. Let's, let's do it, dude. Um, the ban the box policy. Where's that? Where does that thing stand? And where it, do you, it just got introduced. I don't know who the state rep was. I don't know if it's a Democrat or Republican, but, um, I think again, that's going to kind of be our concession. Cause I moved here in like 2015 and I've heard talks of it, like being presented over and over and over again, but to not, well, we finally got a sound piece of legislation, okay. and um, you know it's 2019. Um, it's a long time coming. Um, when you look at places like Atlanta or you know other places that implemented this, it's been proven to be beneficial. Um, again, you know that particular thing. Um, I'm a convicted felon. Um, you know I've got a DUI. I've got a marijuana charge. When I'm going before you know say uh, Duke Power or whomever. Or whoever, um, that particular segment of the uh, application really just kind of negates anything yeah. that you've done. You, people don't want to look at, they want to look at you as a criminal. And when you have a guy who has less experience but doesn't have a criminal record, they're going to choose that guy because he's not convicted for methamphetamine possession 15 years ago. You know, my concern with the whole policy, and this is based off of personal experience is that um, how do we convince the corporations and the individuals who are actually making the decisions, hiring the hiring 
the employees um, because like I do a lot of this. I hold this conversation often in my place of work, downtown, my little part-time job um, and with various employers. And what the issue that I've run into is that I will like my boss, she's a super recovery ally. She supports all the work that I do. She supports this podcast. She supports recovery in our community. And so a number of times I have, uh, we're always hiring seasonally, Christmas, holidays, summer, things like that. And a number of times I've introduced her to a potential employer. She has been willing to overlook the background or whatever box is checked Mm -hmm. and given that individual a face-to-face interview. She has um, wanted to hire said individual. However, corporate requires a background check. So so she meets with him face-to-face. She does an interview. She likes the employee. She wants to hire him. We do a a criminal background check. Corporate says no, right? So it's like, though this, this, she's the decision maker in the store, right? And they tell her to, she's empowered to run your own store and this and that. And so she's able, she's willing and able to overlook this checkered past. The individual is able to come and sit down with her and be completely honest and sell himself. Hey, you know, I'm a person in recovery now. These are the things that I'm doing. I'm enrolled in school. I'm a 3.0 average. I'm active in the recovery community. Yeah, it's still her hands are still tied through corporate. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. HR can be a pain in the butt for real, especially if it's a larger corporation mm-hmm. and they've got policies in place. And generally, they'll go to uh, you know insurance liabilities or something like that as you know the rationale behind denying somebody employment. Um, so I guess the key is we can't do anything about um, what corporate says. Um, they're their own entity. But with this particular issue, it would be very beneficial for, you know, public uh, employees, stuff like that. But what's important, too, is now that person has met with your boss. And if your boss really likes him, thinks he's a great guy and thinks that they should look past that Coke charge that was 10 years old, um, you know, now she has the opportunity to advocate for For him. And that's what we're hoping for. Um, You know, when you look at medical marijuana and say, let's... uh, Oklahoma. I don't think Oklahoma has medical, but you know, in a in a, a state out west, um, you know, Direct TV can still deny employment for somebody who uses medical marijuana, and that's their right. Uh, this piece of legislation wouldn't change that. It would just get that person in the door, get them a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just it was like it was so like almost like demoralized, and he was all excited, and to see like the life just get sucked out of him after the fact, after he had his hopes up and he went through the interview and he sold himself and then, and she was on board and she loved him and she was looking forward to, to hiring him. And he was very forthcoming about his past and very forthcoming of, about his recovery and the things that he's done since then. Um, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, um, the thing about it is I consider myself a Christian and, you know, as a Christian, we believe in redemption from our sins. Um, however, corporations, governments, uh, there's really no leeway in that. So, and really, if you like, take a step back about, take a step back and look at it. Like this society in general, like there is no real path to redemption. Like people like, like Roseanne, 
right? Roseanne got in trouble for a very questionable tweet and she was terminated from her employment and lost her job and her show was canceled and all this, whether you agree with it or not, right? there's no like, and so now she's ostracized from like from mainstream media. And yes, she has some issues going on. Uh, She's been very forthcoming about it, talking about her mental health at the time and her substance use at the time. And so like, you know, that was just an example. Like there is no like clear path to forgiveness and path to redeeming, you know, what you, what you had or for like simple little mistakes like that. I think it's, it's almost like a societal type issue. It it definitely is a societal issue and we need to change that really. Um, It's a lot easier to look down on somebody than it is to reach out your hand and bring them up. Granted, it just takes a little bit more time to reach out that hand and bring them up. Um, But we've kind of been taught to look down on people, whether they're poor or of a different color or whatever. We other people. And that's what a drug convention does, is it others that person. And the dangerous part about that is with your friend, like you said, it made him discouraged. So he's a person in recovery. You know, let's say he's been drinking for 10 years straight. Well, when that happens, the first thing that he thinks is, damn, I'm going to go to that brewery and grab a beer, you know? I got one even better. His only, like, skill set prior to, like, this potential job, his only skill set was carpentry work. Mm -hmm. And so he only knows a couple people in this little small town that will hire him. And guess what they're doing? Drugs. Using (laughs) drugs. So then here he is, a year and a half, substance-free, and he's forced to go back into this environment where he had previously used drugs because he was denied employment through the corporate office. And I felt, I felt bad, man. I felt horrible that he had to go through that. Um, and we had a lot of conversations about it. We talked about like just getting that seat at the table. And what was that? What did you gain from just being able to tell your story? Mm-hmm. What did you gain from being able to sell yourself to said boss and knowing that she was in support of you? Hopefully you gained a little hope. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely did. Um, you know, also just like the way that we live in this like instant gratification world. Like I just felt horrible that like there wasn't, there wasn't nothing we could do. You know, it was like our hands were literally tied by, tied by corporate. And that's just one scenario, you know, individuals, um, we, we were talking prior to the podcast, um, Going back to school, collegiate recovery, right? Like checking that box. You have a drug charge, denies you the ability to receive financial aid. Yeah, they actually um, passed an amendment in 2009, I think when Obama came into office. I forget. It's a Higher Education Elimination Act. So they changed it to where um, if you were now receiving federal aid and you received a, a, a drug conviction, then you lost your federal aid. Um, but uh, the organization that I once sat on the board of directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy, um, they estimated before this up to 200,000 people have been denied federal aid. So a lot of times these are lower income families, and this is the only way for this person to obtain a higher education. And in our society, you know, it's the church of education. Everybody thinks going to school and getting a degree is the best thing for you. You know, granted, there's a lot of fluff taught mm-hmm. in education, and not everything you learn in school is applicable in the real world. But either way, having a college degree makes you that much more employable um, and also gives you a lot of great experience. And it's an overall great thing. Don't let me deter you from it. But um, 
it stinks. Um, you know, if I were receiving federal aid and I got pulled over with a little bit of pot in my car, you know, in Georgia, I would go to jail for that. Federally, I would lose my financial aid. And, you know, three and a half years into school, you know, that would force me to do a lot of different things in order to obtain an education. And it could be a barrier. Um, we estimated in Georgia there's about eight or 900 people every uh, year that lose their financial aid due to drug charges. And, um, you know, a mistake, usually most people grow out of substance use. You know, a lot of times it's recreational, and for most people it doesn't prove to be problematic or chaotic. So, you know, something that most people go through when you're younger can be a stigma and a barrier in a lot of different ways. Um, that's why we can't arrest our way out of this issue. So. Yeah. <laughs> Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Yes. Tell me more. That's my baby. Uh-huh. Um, so I came across SDP in 2014. Um, you know, I was fed up with our draconian drug policies. Um, I myself have uh, been in and out of arrest. First time I got arrested, I was 16. From 16 to 24, I was in and out of jail, you know, for things like shoplifting and taking my dad's car out and having a little bit of pot on me. But I constantly found myself... Uh, when I was dealing with the substance use issue, I was going through addiction. Um, I was in and out of arrest. Anytime I try to go to school, I get picked up on a warrant. Three different times the first week of school, I got arrested and had to spend 30, 60, 90 days in jail. You know, that ruined the semester for me. It was a huge barrier. And so when I found SSDP, it was a, a breath of fresh air. You know, these were like minded people who were dedicated to ending the war on drugs because it's not a war on an inanimate object. Think about it. We've been losing a, a war to a plant, <laughs> to you know, substances for 40 plus years now. Um, it's a war on people, and more importantly, it's a war on poor people and people of color. Um, as we talked about before, you know, a lot of us refer to it as the new Jim Crow, and it is a way to other people. It's a way to other people who have already been othered, um, people in Appalachia, people in Asheville that are coming from minority communities that have, you know, systematically had so many barriers thrown up against them. Um, SSDP works to fight that stuff. And um, right now we're on 300 plus university campuses and I believe 33 different countries. Um, just had a good friend speak before the United Nations at the uh, uh, drug conference. I forget what the acronym stands for, what exactly it was. But, um, you know, I get emails and Facebook messages from kids in Nigeria and Uganda and Ghana and Australia. And, um, you know, the barriers that they're having to deal with are a lot worse than what we're dealing with here in the U.S. But when you look at who's getting arrested right now, it's younger folks, too. It's people in college. Um, college age students are profiled. That Western North Carolina sticker on the back of your car when you're coming through Rabin County, Georgia from Atlanta, that means they're going to pull you over a lot more frequently especially if it's midnight well if it's midnight you got a car full of people uh -huh. you know they're just going to automatically assume that you're driving drunk you've got weed you're up to no good and uh you know that may or may not be the case however you know young people are targeted people of color are targeted you know the drug war keeps poor people down they can't afford the attorneys they can't afford the bond they can't afford the probation and so we've got these policies that have been enacted since the 1970s. In reality, they were enacted because of political dissidents. 
But what's happening, even amongst constitutional Republicans, is they're starting to see that these policies haven't worked. They haven't deterred drug use. They've made things, uh, the drug policies, our current drug policies, have made things worse. When you look at a state like Colorado that's chosen to say legalize marijuana, that money that was once going to drug cartels, to you know shady businesses, whomever, um, not everyone was shady, but you know when it goes back to a Mexican cartel, it's not being put to good use. They're buying guns, our guns, and um, you know it's being used to kill people. But now this drug money for marijuana is being used for education. Um, it's educating people about drug use. And they're starting to have an honest conversation about drug use in Colorado. Um, What's funny, though, is in Colorado, teen usage has actually gone down. Because it's a lot harder, at least when I was growing up, to get alcohol from the store than it was to get pot from a drug dealer. And that dude I got weed from also had ecstasy. He also had a hookup for coke. You know, we could get these other things through the illegal market. And again, the illegal market, you never know what you're getting. It could be one thing, it could be the other. And um, there's just a lot of problems with it. Yeah. So um, SSDP, they raise awareness on campus. They legis- uh, go to lobbying events at state legislatures. Uh, they lobby before the United Nations. They're just doing great work. And, um, you know, we're saving lives ac- across the country. Um, I would say that SSDP is probably the foremost drug policy reform movement in the world right now. Wow. Um, you... Were you a part of starting a chapter at University of North Georgia? Yeah, I've actually helped start a couple of chapters um, at North Georgia. We helped with uh, UGA, Georgia State. Well, Georgia State kind of did their own thing. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I've helped start a, a couple different chapters. I was the founding member of my chapter at UNG. And, um, you know, we've been recognized before the state legislature before for our work. Um, I've probably worked with students from 20 different universities to help establish medical amnesty policies. We worked with the Medical Association of Georgia to equip all university campuses with Narcan. They did most of the work. It was our suggestion. But, you know, they were able to finance over $300,000 worth of Narcan. And that first year, I believe we had nine reversals. You know, um, granted, if it had been used in, say, uh, an area with higher drug use, it might have been more reversals for that money. But either way, it's very important that these college campuses are now carrying Narcan because, as we mentioned before, uh, the fentanyl is completely saturated the drug market. And the drug market, like I keep saying, you never know what you're going to get. And today I liken it to playing Russian roulette. Um, it's just pretty dangerous. Yeah. Now these medical amnesty policies that you guys work so hard on, um, do they have any type of language that talks about alcohol as well? So that was our biggest hurdle in Georgia, surprisingly. Um, the Prosecutors Association, not going to mention that person's name, but he Go said, ahead and Google that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Dude. So it's actually somebody I, my my dad grew up grew up knowing and stuff like that. But um, the head of the prosecutors' association told myself and a group of parents who had lost their kids to drug overdoses that they didn't want alcohol coverage because they were afraid they would lose revenue. He didn't say that on TV. You know, I wish I had a damn recorder behind closed doors. Yeah. Well, you know, it was there uh, on the ropes and stuff like that, and. Um, you know, that's that's blatantly obvious. That particular statement lets you know where the prosecutors stand on things. You know, this is a revenue generator. Um, you've got private probation, private prisons. Uh, there's a lot of revenue that's brought in from these misdemeanor arrests, like open containers and underage consumptions, especially in college towns like this. 
you know, so bail bondsmen, there's all these different groups that make a lot of money off of arresting people. And like I said before, we don't get results when we stick somebody in jail. It just makes things worse for them. You're talking about people's lives, though, brother. Like, how many alcohol poisonings? I don't know what the data right? is like, on alcohol poisonings. Oh, yeah, I know. I just, it, you know. I mean, think about it, though. Growing up, it's like, wow, you know, we've all been at a party where somebody had too much and they threw them in a shower. Or Never caught, yeah. And, you know, what we've been working on for over, for these five years is, you know, let's build that relationship with kids, with drug users, and make them more comfortable to call 911 because the last thing in the world we want is for somebody to die. Whether or not that person who provided the alcohol or the drugs is charged with murder, no matter what, it's not going to bring them back. Yeah, and if you got a house full of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, what are the chances of them calling 911 when the house is full of booze? Right, and, you know, if you look at, like, uh, neurochemistry and neurogenetics, um, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, nothing against you guys, um, you know, a lot of times your brain hasn't fully developed, and uh, I guess that's my excuse for the mistakes I made when I was younger. <laughs> Don't worry, me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're not really thinking properly when you're 18 and, um, you know, you're trying to get into a nursing program and, um, you know, your girlfriend just fell out. You know, some folks don't do the right thing and they abandon them. You know, it's that fear of arrest, that self-preservation that kicks in, that fight or flight, you know, the adrenaline. Um, you know, your brain's just going haywire. And, you know, our ultimate goal is to let people know that they call. If they call for help, they're not going to get into trouble. Yeah. You know, we don't want you to drink so much that you're going to pass out and your friends are going to pass out. But, you know, the fact that I said, hey, you're not going to get into trouble if you're at this party and you call for help, it doesn't encourage people to go out and drink. They're already doing that. Yeah, they're doing it. Every day. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, there's, um, there's somebody drinking right now. <laughs> Western, you know, a beer tune, pong game. Tune it in. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully so. Hey, guys. Um, what about, like, we were talking a little bit about the path to redemption a few minutes ago. Do they work on any types of policies, like, to where if a kid did get in trouble, say they did get caught with a bag of dope, and they did catch some charges, like, do they have to get, like, in, is the policy to remove them from school like what is the you know what i mean like so that's a very good question and a lot of times you know schools are their own entities it's like a corporation mm -hmm. right so they have their own set of policies um generally you won't get a medical amnesty policy passed without developing some sort of path to redemption which i'm all for you know if kids are drinking and they're having a problem and the guy's not doing well in his classes let's build a support network let's get them into counseling let's find a collegiate recovery boom <laughs> yeah know? And, um, you know, building that community of uh, recovery is extremely important on college campuses. You know, instead of that dude who only knows friends that drink, you know, now there's a counselor and a group of people who are trying to support him throughout college so that he doesn't run to the bottle. You know, he runs to his friends who are having a pizza night, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the key aspects. And that's something that I like about the college level, too. You know, we have resources to help those people that are dealing with addiction issues. And uh, that's not so much... And they're funded. Like, you know what I mean? Like me at 30 years old trying to find recovery, like I, I had to pay out of pocket to find, you know, because I didn't have health coverage and all that stuff. Whereas you're, you're on a college campus, included in your tuition is access to the counseling center and access to the wellness center and all these other types of programs that are there and gyms and all, you <laughs> yeah. know there's there's so many great things about being a college Dude, student. I, I use the i use every resource on my campus that i can period and that's great but you're also a little bit older and you oh, realize yeah, yeah. that hey 
this shit's free. Yeah, like, dude. Excuse my language, but you know, it's like I gotta pay out of pocket for this counseling if I'm not in school. You know, and uh, the important part is that that person is in school. They are engaged in these types of activities, and they are making positive momentum. You know, if I were to catch a dope charge and get kicked out of school, you know, now I've got a bunch of debt that I have to pay off. I've got a drug conviction. And, uh, you know, those few steps forward are 10 steps back. Mm-hmm. Setting yourself up for failure. Next thing you know, you're looking at incarceration or, you know, it's really like a, it's a, it's a rapid, rapid decline. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. It's a snowball effect. And, um, you know, what's great about the medical amnesty policies is for us, for drug policy reform advocates, we saw this as a, an essential first step to, you know, building positive momentum for people who use drugs. Yeah. Now, the individuals who participate in um, the sensible drug policy, is it club? Is it a club kind of thing? Or yeah, it's it? a club. You start a club on campus. Okay. You know, there's an advisor that you would reach out to, an outreach director. And um, you actually, generally, if it's a public university, you'd have to go through student congress to get it approved. But, you know, if they're going to approve the anarchist club and the nurses club, they have to approve yeah. you unless you're out there saying, you know, smoke hella weed, dude. You can't advocate for drug use, but you can't advocate for sensible drug policy reform. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's what I was like. The individuals who are participating in this organization. All students. Where, where do they come from? Like, what types of walks of life do you? You know what? All different types of walks of life. Um, there's been a big, big push to incorporate, you know, uh, more women into leadership positions. Uh, we definitely have been reaching out to uh, HBSUs. But um, it's your average college kid. You know, a lot of times it's kids that have gone through the drug war. They've been arrested. They've been polarized by this issue. And that's why they're willing to, you know, stick their flag in the sand and, you know, raise awareness about the wrong and negative effects of our drug policies. Yeah. So it just depends. You're selling me, man. I think we need one over here at Western, dude. You guys need 10 of them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we totally do. Um. (laughs) So you work at the uh, syringe exchange in Haywood County? Yeah. Is that what? Yeah, it's it's Haywood. Um, occasionally I'm in Jackson County. I'm actually registered with the state to come to Jackson, Buncombe, Transylvania, Henderson. And there's one more I'm forgetting beyond Haywood. So, you know, I'm not in them as regular as, or as much as I would like to be. But, um, you know, if there's 40 hours spent in the week, I probably spend 32 of them in Haywood. Yeah. And you're just like working the counter, like engaging with? So this is a mobile unit. Um, What we've noticed with rural uh, areas is mobile exchange is uh, better. You can reach more people. Transportation is just such an issue out here. You get caught in that vicious cycle that we were talking about. You don't have a license. You can't afford, you don't have a car. You can't afford insurance and a tag and all that stuff. And and what are the chances that you're going to be able to show up on a Tuesday at five o'clock to get some clean needles? Exactly. And, you know, the ultimate goal of a harm reductionist is to meet people where they're at, whether it's a homeless camp or in the Chattahoochee Country Club, you know. I'm sure you've been to both. Yeah. You know, and um, that's the thing is it's not just in homeless camps. It's a lot of times in Lake Junaluska, in the country clubs. And uh, the kids there are dealing with a lot of the same issues. They don't have a car. They don't have a license. So I bring them Narcan. I bring them clean supplies. I bring them fentanyl testing strips. And, uh, you know, the premise behind these policies, uh, syringe access programs, is disease reduction. We find that when a syringe exchange is implemented in an area and the syringe exchange is well-functioning, on average, it reduces HIV acquisition rates by 80% and hepatitis C acquisition rates by 50%. 
Not only does it reduce, uh, reduce diseases, um, it prevents things like endocarnitis, which if I, without insurance, contract endocarnitis, which is basically an infection that makes its way to the heart, when that person winds up admission, the taxpayers are on the hook for a half a million dollar surgery. Um, hepatitis C medicine can range from $100,000 to $300,000. Um, you know, these are very expensive things to happen, and a two-cent syringe can prevent them. But it's not all about getting people clean supplies and, uh, you know, providing no consequences for drug use. We train people how to use Narcan. We train people how to use fentanyl. And uh, one of the ultimate goals, too, of these policies is to bring people in the continuum of care. Um, I will drop everything that I am doing. I'd walk out of this room right now and leave this interview if one of my participants called me and said, I want to go to detox. Um, I want to go to the halfway house. Go ahead and say that one more time just for anybody that might have missed that. Cause <laughs> so I if you guys need a ride to detox, my number is 910-228-7910. Jeremy, again, 910-228-7910. I will drop anything, drop everything, and uh, we will get you into some sort of treatment. Um, we will find the resources um, if you don't have insurance. We will work with you to try to find any positive help that we can, whether you need a ride to the doctor for uh, an infection related to syringe use. You know, that's what these policies are about, are bringing people into that continuum of care. And very often, people who are engaging in syringe exchange, they've been isolated, they've been ostracized, they're on the fringes, and we're the first people they meet. So... I'm a crisis negotiator, I'm a counselor, I'm a linkage to care operator, um, I help people with employment options, uh, employment problems. Um, there's a plethora of different things that I've done by the end of the day. And uh, the ultimate goal is to get people back on their feet and going in the right direction. However, our de definition of recovery is a little bit different. We look at recovery as any positive direction. So if somebody were to scale back their meth usage and instead of injecting a gram a day and only be doing two-tenths of a gram, for us, that's positive. For that person to reduce their meth usage and to get a job, that's a huge step in the right direction. Um, you know, So there's just little things that can go in to making people's lives better, to making them more productive members of society. Now, there's no pressure for people to uh, do those types of things because... A lot of times drug users have been shamed, they've been ostracized, they've had all these things happen to them. And, uh, you know, I basically sit out there with my fishing pole every day, it's a metaphor, and uh, I wait for the fish to bite. You know, if I put out this much Narcan or give out these many fentanyl testing strips, eventually somebody's going to ask about methadone, they're going to ask about Suboxone, and I've got the resources to provide them with treatment. I can get them there. Um, we can find a grant to pay for your medication. So that's what syringe exchange is about. Um, not only does it bring people in the continuum of care, it reduces overdoses. Yeah. Um, this is the best possible way to get naloxone into the hands of active drug users. Um, so we actually supply most of Western North Carolina with their Narcan, whether it's WinCap, Steady, uh, Full Circle, the EBCI, SAP program. Um, they're all getting our Narcan from us. And uh, just an offhand estimate, over the last year, the Narcan that we supplied to folks has resulted in close to 1,000 reversals. So it's 1,000 people that might have been dead, now they're alive, and they have that opportunity. Our motto back home is, where there's life, there's hope. 
Um, you know, anybody who's breathing, anybody who's still alive, there's hope for you. There's hope for you to make positive direction, to become a productive member, a taxpayer, whatever it is you think is a good person. Um, not saying that people who use drugs are bad people, but they've got a lot of things going on with them. And the key is to work through those problems, those adverse childhood experiences, those divorces, the abuse that they took on from a spouse or the, the child they lost during birth. You know, those types of things exacerbate drug use. And those are the types of problems that bring somebody into injecting drug use. Um, you know, it's like digging a hole. You just don't see your way out sometimes. And there's so many barriers. And for me, I like to walk people through those barriers. Um, I've gone through a lot of them myself, and it takes somebody who's lived lived that walk to walk the walk and talk it. You know, um, those experiences can't be taught in school. Mm. You know, um, you just don't get them from your master's program at WCU. Um, but for a person like me or some of my colleagues, we've lived through it and we made it. And our ultimate goal is to see that person live through it and make it too. It's again, it's another one of those polarizing topics where when the, when it's brought up, people only see the needle exchange and Narcan <clears throat> distribution and they, they don't see, they don't recognize and see the gray area in the middle about all those things that you just described. Right. If I see one more fucking Narcan is free meme on the internet, <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. Okay. People like it's just, it, it, there's just so much more to the work that you're doing than providing clean needles and providing Narcan. Um, how do you putting myself back into the, the place of a drug user? How do you, um, initially, build that relationship and kind of earn some trust well it's hard it's a very yeah. hard thing you know first when i got out there people were like this is some fed shit you know, <laughs> yeah. they're trying to set me up well you know i just stay consistent i maintain an open relationship you know it's ever well people call me all the time three o'clock in the morning and stuff i don't answer those anymore i used to but um, you know, it's maintaining that consistency, maintaining that open relationship. And the most important thing is coming at it from a non-judgmental standpoint. You know, I took somebody to a detox center the other day and she walked out of it. Well, the reason was the counselor said, well, I have to be here for 12 hours because I, and I get it because I deal with people like you. Well, there it is. People like you, you know, and that's how a lot of service that's providers. That's a professional. That's somebody yeah. with a master's degree, probably, you know, who's been dealing with this issue for 10 or 15 years. And, um, you know, the thing about drug use is we've been taught to other people. And um, it's not another, it's my brother, my sister. And that's how I look at it. Um, I'm going to do anything I can to help you. Um, granted, sometimes I have to say no. There's some things I can't do for you. But my ultimate goal is to help folks. And once I break down with that barrier with one person, he or she, or they, they tell a friend, you know, and word spreads. That's how we get our referrals, is by word of mouth. You know, when I first started the programs, we put up posters everywhere, and nobody called. But a year later, we've been working in these communities, and not only does the person trust us, but their friends trust us. And very often, their family members trust us, even the ones that don't use the drugs, family members. You know, we train them on how to use Narcan. They have our number. Um, you don't know how many times a week I answer a phone call from a probation officer or a DSS agent. 
you know, because these people know that we're out there to advocate for them. I will sit in court with you all day long and wait for that two or three minutes to tell the judge, that's a good person. They're going through some stuff. We're trying to work with with them. And um, it works. Yeah. What about, um, are there any policies or procedures in place for when an overdose takes place, say in the counties that you're working in? Do you guys do direct outreach and is Narcan provided by, like, provided to the individual, like, immediately from EMS or from the hospitals? Or what's that What's that process like? Um, It's a pain in the ass yeah. um, dealing with hospitals. Because it just seems to me like it should just be sense. automatic. Yeah. Right? And, um, you know, uh, very often the people that are making policy sit in the Ivy Tower and they have no experience with this. Until you get there, man. Well, you know, that's the ultimate goal is to break down that tower. You know, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Hear the good news. Like, you don't have to act this way. And, uh, you know, putting Narcan in the hands of EMS, I will say um, in uh, Marion, what county is Marion? Uh, Just east of Boncombe, I don't know. Yeah, oh gosh, McDowell County, Marion's in McDowell. The oh e- yeah, I saw that recently. Uh-huh. So the EMS providers there um, now distribute Narcan. And, um, you know, there's, there's two reasons. A, it reduces death, and B, for EMS providers, very often they're on the hook for four or $5,000 trip to the hospital. So it makes economic sense for them to provide the Narcan, which costs about $75 a kid or so. Um, you know, but there's a lot of uh, apps. There's a lot of uh, uh, People don't want to do it, especially EMS and hospital administrators. Um, you know, the police, surprisingly, were the first ones to jump on board. We need Narcan. We need to save these kids, you know, these drug users, these victims, whatever it is they call them. And, um, you know, it's just, a, I guess, because these are mostly private entities and they're not responsible to taxpayers directly. Um, you know, that person who's sitting in that ivy tower just can't get the boot next year election cycle that probably has a lot to do with it but you know if anybody from mission from any of these ems services is listening reach out to us we have the narcan we'll provide it for free um you know you don't have to do anything but get an employee to train them it takes two or three minutes and as Jean says she can train a monkey (laughs) so it doesn't take much to train somebody on how to use this stuff and um you know that would make my job a lot easier we would see a lot we would see a reduction in deaths. To me, that seems like a sensible policy in lieu of sending somebody to jail for murder. But what we're seeing, too, in particular with some of these hospitals, not to name names, you know, when somebody comes in for a drug overdose, they're immediately put under guard. And people who want to visit them can't because there's these barriers. And, you know, there's reasons why this stuff has happened. But you're making it harder for people. And again, you're othering them and you're making them not want to come into that continuum of care when they're treated like a criminal. In reality, this is a health issue. You're cr- treated like a criminal in a medical setting without mm-hmm. it, without any charges being no. brought on. Yeah. It, it's ridiculous. And, um, it hurts people. Yeah. Um, will we ever see safe injection sites? Um, so they're in, coming in, in our in our state in Western North Carolina. I predict less than five years we'll have five one. years. Yeah, you'll see them in places like Fayetteville or Charlotte or Greensboro, where there's a more tolerant attitude, and um, you know you might see them in a place like Waynesville, where there's a lot of uh, local leadership that wants to see you know this uh, epidemic, if that's what you want to call it, um, 
if they want to see this drug issue, uh, the overdose rate reduce, um, you know, we're seeing them in Colorado, we're seeing them in, in places up north, and, um, you know, eventually that will trans, I guess transmute, no, I'm looking for a word, <laughs> but eventually it will make its way down here to the uh, southern states, and, um, you know, until that happens, um, they'll probably be illegal. You know, safe injection sites are, are going on every day, and uh, I'm not going to say where they are, but there's places in Atlanta, there's places in North Carolina where folks can use drugs in a safe setting, and there's some sort of medical person around. That was my next question, is like, what, what would be the ramifications, hypothetically speaking? So, I forget the name of the legislative piece, but it was Joe Biden that pushed it, I think, in 2002. Um, essentially, if I allowed my church to be a safe injection facility, uh, under the letter of the law, it's now defined as a crack house, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, it's a place, uh, I think they call it a crack house in the law, you know. <laughs> and, you know, Biden lost his son to a drug overdose, and that's why he passed it. And, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. My drug policy friends, if they're listening to this, they're going to hate me because, uh, well, not hate me. They're going to be like, Jeremy. You've already brought a ton of data for us tonight, <laughs> man. Well, you know, brain fart on that one. But, um, you know, it would essentially turn a place into, uh, uh, this is the best way to, I, I don't know any other way to define it, but it's a drug use house, a crack house, you know, and um, you're looking at five, 10, 15 years. Um, there's insurance liability issues. You know, somebody could sue that church or that private establishment for letting that stuff happen. And then, you know, the people that are doing it, you know, like I said, they would be facing jail time for enabling this type of thing. What type of pushback do you think we would get in the local community here? Oh, pitchforks um, initially, um, you know, but the thing is, is like I said, you know, I've brought a lot of data here. Um, data proves that these type of programs can help people. They can help bring them into the continuum of care. And most importantly, uh, they reduce overdose rates. So when, you know, a safe injection site is brought to Jackson County and the overdose rate goes down by 20%, what really can you say? Um, hopefully that'll happen. So yeah. tying it back to our initial conversation at the beginning of the show, sounds like some legislators are trying to take credit for those rates by dropping these new laws in place. Um, what, uh, fentanyl testing, mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought a lot about it lately and because it's gone from, opioids heroin into cocaine mm -hmm. the meth the mdma um, essentially everything that's out there mm -hmm. um it, are there any barriers to educating drug users on testing their drugs because I, I again i try to put myself in the in the shoes of the drug user and like would i've ever tested my drugs i don't know the answer to that question uh, i definitely would, would es you? especially when it comes yeah. to things like mdma uh where you've really like in Atlanta, um, National Geographic came through about four years ago, and we did a field test. 85% of the stuff was bunk that was being sold on a dance floor at a particular nightclub that night. And That's so, probably higher now, right? Well, you know, then it was methadrone, and the methadrone basalts is still in the MDMA and the methamphetamine supply, but now it's methadrone and fentanyl. So, you know, um, I think, um, you know, it just depends on the person. Um, you know, it takes just a couple of minutes to 
uh, train somebody on how to use the fentanyl testing strip. But it's also important to remember that the fentanyl testing strip has its limitations. Um, somebody once told me there's 46 different types of fentanyl. Uh, fear fentanyls, acetafentanyls, the car fentanyls. There's a couple different classes. And uh, the testing strips actually only test for 26 of the 46 different types of fentanyl. And if I remember correctly, it doesn't test for car fentanyl. I'll have to look that one up later, maybe send you an email just in case that's wrong. But, um, you know, there, there are limitations to it. Um, you can leave them outside too long and they don't work. But, um, you know, I guess legally... There's no legal ramifications for having a fentanyl testing strip. You might get a police officer who says, oh, this fentanyl testing strip is probable cause. Well, it's not. Um, but, you know, really it's just getting it in the hands of people. Are you distributing them when you distribute naloxone and Every needles? day. Every day? <laughs> Hundreds? Um, <laughs> I've probably distributed at least 20,000 of them, um, you know, to different syringe exchanges and individuals and harm reduction groups and what we find is you know say when i give it to a drug user and it tests positive for fentanyl sometimes they throw it away it doesn't happen a lot because people are addicted and they need that substance what happens is they start to make more responsible decisions so they won't use alone they'll use less they'll do a test shot things like that can make the drug use uh, a little bit safer and that's the ultimate goal of the harm reductionist is to not say don't do the drugs, but be smart about what you're doing. You know, look out for your friends. And that's what the fentanyl testing strips encourage. And you're distributing the Narcan at the same time so that even if it does test positive and they are taking all those safety precautions and things do go worst case scenario, they still have another layer of protection. Yeah, but people know they're doing fentanyl right now. And um, <clears throat> like I said before, uh, one of the groups in Asheville tested our does testing, and amongst their participant pool, they found that 90% of the dope going through Asheville right now, heroin, um, had fentanyl in it. And some people seek out fentanyl because it's cheaper and more powerful. Um, so yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal is to make it safer. Um, I tell folks don't use alone. Again, do a test shot, use with friends. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing. And uh, make sure your friends know how to use that Narcan. It, it takes a couple of steps, but Every day in Western North Carolina, um, fentanyl is being used and Narcan is being used to reverse that person and, and bring them out of an overdose. Yeah. Um, I had a girl who uh, just got into methadone treatment last week. She had overdoses reversed 14 times. Uh, the cops reversed overdose three times on her. And um, this particular person, if I post on Facebook, she probably knows who I'm talking about. But um, the point is she's alive. And she's now using medicated-assisted treatment. And she's getting counseling at the methadone clinic. And instead of spending $100 a day and putting herself out there in really bad, dangerous situations, she's now at the methadone clinic and spends $12 a day. Um, you know, I've got a feeling with her we're, we're going to have a heart. We're still going to have a struggle. But um, her mom has the Narcan. Her dad has the Narcan. Her neighbors have it. Her friends have it. You know, there's this whole network of people that know how to use the Narcan, and because of us, they now have it. So they're on the lookout. Um, I had a guy, <laughs> he was telling me a story. He got Nar So he was in recovery, and he'd been clean and stuff like that. Well, um, he fell asleep at the hospital, and one of the nurses came out 
squirted some Narcan <laughs> up his nose. He was completely sober, woke up, yeah. you know, somebody jabbing yeah. something up his nose. And then later on that day, he fell asleep at his house and his dad came in with an in- intramuscular kit, Same which is thing. a needle, hit him in the leg with a, a needle. <laughs> and he woke up from that, you know. Um, and I just laughed about it. And I'm happy that these folks acted that way, you know. That's the response you want. That's the response I want. Yeah. The good thing about the Narcan is, you know, a layman can use it. There's no adverse effects that happen from it. Um, granted, it's going to attack to the, I believe, mu, mu and uh, delta opioid receptors. But, um, you know, what's going to happen is that person's a little bit ticked off for 30, 90 minutes. Um, so there's really no adverse things that can happen from the, the Narcan administration. Um, it's not a fail-safe. You know, it, it's not a cure-all. It's not a panacea. But it's the most vital tool that we have beyond the medical amnesty policies to helping curb these uh, the drug epidemic. Um, the overdose rates, um, they're extremely high. And um, I can only think of what they would be without Narcan, without medical amnesty, um, they would be skyrocketing. And the thing about it, too, is we really don't have accurate data on this stuff. Each county, uh, the biggest problem I have with these western counties, too, in particular Jackson, isn't reporting OD admission data to ERs. Um, from Jackson County over, the only county I believe that reports it is Swain. Back in Georgia, um, there's seven counties that don't report to the GBI. And forgive me, I'm getting on a tangent. Um, they don't report their overdose deaths to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is in charge of keeping track of this data. And those counties are Fulton, Cobb, Gwinnett, Rockdale, Henry, uh, Forsyth. There's one more I'm forgetting. But essentially 40% of the state's data isn't included in the overdose deaths. And Atlanta is a drug trafficking hub. It's part of the high-intensity drug trafficking area. And, um, you know, it kind of stinks when you don't exactly know what's going on. Um, Why? Because- Why? Well, it's it's multiple. why don't they want to provide the information? Um, they don't want to admit that there's a problem, and you know I'm a public health director or I'm a sheriff in one of these counties, and we just had twice the number of overdose rates. Well, that's what everybody's going to be asking: is why is this happening? So they avoid those tough questions, and they're reelected. Um, you know, that's the ultimate goal of a politician of a public servant is to stay in their position. And, um, you know, a lot of times denying the issue is a lot easier than actually taking the steps that's necessary to solve the issue. Mm -hmm. So that's why. (sighs) It's crazy, man. (laughs) Fentanyl myths. Oh, well, there's just... I I had a a local uh, sheriff... Did he Narcan his dog? Tell me that, no, I don't, tell me that his officers only carry Narcan to protect themselves. Well, that's a dick move right there. Um, you know, forgive me, whoever you are. But you so be careful driving home. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, you can't you can't absorb enough fentanyl. See if I I would basically have to lick the bag or put it up my nose. Um, transdermal absorption rates you don't get high, you don't feel anything. If you stuck your whole finger down in there, even if it was wet, it's not going to absorb through those mucous membranes enough to cause you to even get high, let alone overdose. And there's another myth of the fentanyl getting in the air. Well, you really have to snort a bunch of this in the air to get it. You know, like who's just going to be like, poof, baggy everywhere, breathe yeah. it in. You know, that that's dumb. Um, and it's not happening. Because a lot of these myths are preventing like first responders, not even like a 
official first responders, but like EMS, you know, EMS or just anybody from responding yeah. or reacting. Well, it's ridiculous and it's not true. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen all these new re- news reports, uh, you know, canine unit gets Narcan, yeah. you know, or there was another one in like Ohio or something like that. Uh, local nurse receives award for administering naloxone to two police officers who touched the substance. Well, damn, they were lying. You know, it, it's a lie. I on my computer right now, I've got probably three or four hundred pages of research that indicates that transdermal, you know, through the the mucous membranes and the st- skin uh, absorption of fentanyl, any type of fentanyl is impossible. Um, there are things like fentanyl patches, but there's a catalyst, a chemical catalyst that's added to the patches that allow for a time-release transderm- transdermal absorption into the skin. And, um, you know, if a police officer... That basically just tells you how much that cop knows or that individual um, knows about the actual situation that's going on right now. You can't, it's not possible. The officers who have, um, who have reacted to say, uh, consumption of the substance or touching on the substance absorption, is that like a placebo type effect? Is it something, so what what do you think? What happens is they, uh, you know, they do a drug test, the toxicology report comes back and there's nothing in the system, you know, there was, and so, um, I don't know. Maybe the cop's having a bad day and wants to go home early. Maybe there is a placebo effect. Like, ah, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. I touched it. Yeah. Like, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I just. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to think and I honestly think it's attention. That's yeah. the only thing I can think of, um, you know, and it's a way to further ostracize people. The stigma. And stigma. Yeah. You know, that's what it produces is stigma, you know, and, um, you know, it. There, there's a there's a place in hell for people who make up lies like that. You know, yeah. I'm sorry. I should, probably shouldn't say that, but you know, you, you're you're creating uh, what's the word? You know, a lot of hype, uh, hysteria, over much ado about nothing. It's not possible yeah. whatsoever. It's like um, you're putting your personal values <laughs> ahead of you know somebody's life. You know, because that somebody reads that news article and then they're not likely to respond or react when something does happen. I work at a department store, dude. We have some uh, individuals who like to shoplift from our store. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they'll come in and they'll grab a bunch of clothing items and they'll go into the fitting room and do whatever they got to do to get those things out the door. Mm -hmm. And I am always concerned because we found needles in Mm -hmm. the fitting rooms before. And so I'm always concerned. So if they're in there for more than like five to 10 minutes, I'm knocking on the door just to see if they're okay. Yeah. Just to check on them. You do know? you have Narcan? We do. Okay. Yeah. Oh, in our first aid kit. Do you yeah. have it personally? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, cool. yeah. I got some. Oh, for, for sure. <laughs> for sure, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, you know, um, you don't really have to worry about touching a bag of fentanyl. Um, you do need to be concerned about needles. Mm-hmm. And not every person who's stealing is doing it to support their drug habit, but it is pretty common. Um, you know, within those needles, um, the HIV can live for, I believe, three days outside the body, and hep C can live for three to four weeks. Um, if you ever did get stuck by a needle, the first thing you need to do is go to the hospital. If you're on the job, your employer should pay for it. There's insurance. You want to do the prep. 
And, um, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to go through. Some people have told me it's like going through chemo. And uh, the drugs cost anywhere from 30 to 50 to however many thousands of dollars. However, there are grants. There are insurance policies. There's things that will pay for this. And, um, you know, you want to go ahead and knock that bug out if you can, if you ever do get stuck. So if there's a needle on the floor, um, what I would advise doing is taking a pair of tongs if, you know, it's your job and you have to uh, mess with it and putting it in a container like a, uh, a laundry detergent container and disposing of it in the trash. That container is thick enough where the needle won't poke through. Um, if you're in Haywood County and you see a needle, call me. I'll come and pick it up for you guys. The police department often will do it in most of these localities. Um, you know, somebody will pick it up if you guys don't want to. Are like the... Um in public restrooms, the drop boxes, those are cool. Yeah, we've got, I believe, 28 of them, mm-hmm. something like that, 20-something in Waynesville. Um, a lot of times we see them in public restrooms, in uh, gas stations, and truck stops. And um, in Haywood, I come every three to six months and dispose of those and take them to a proper dump site and go through that whole process. Um, those are great ways to keep needles out of the community. Also, syringe exchanges have been proven to reduce needles in the community by, I believe, 66%. Um, so, so it's a direct disposal of them, right? Well, that and we do good neighborly things. You know, if I'm set up at a church, whenever I'm done doing my thing, I'm going to walk around that church and clean up the needles. Um, in places where there's a lot of injection drug use, um, there's a certain area in Waynesville where there's a lot of people that use the drugs. So... You know, every couple months I'll walk through with my tongs and my, you know, um, my box to dispose of them. And I got gloves on and thick shoes and I get rid of those needles for people. Um, the locations, do they have, have they put up a physical like large drop boxes in Waynesville? Area? Yeah, we've got them, I believe. It's either 23 or 28 different places. Okay. And they're in the gyms, excuse me, they're in uh, bathrooms. Uh, some of them are private, private companies. They just put a bunch up in Cherokee. Yeah, recently. That's, that's great. The coolest the cool part about it was to see the community's response. Like they were in full support of these things going up. I didn't see one person um resisting it. The one uh question that I would have about them is the location on where they put them. They put them in very public places. Mm-hmm not necessarily where people would be using drugs. So right. like the drug user would have to go a pretty good distance <laughs> out of their way to take advantage of it, if yeah. that makes sense, you know? And, uh, you know, Cherokee's actually got a great syringe access program. Yes. My friend Ginger runs it. And, uh, you know, Ginger, I'll tell you, they have months where they actually receive more syringes than they gave out that month. Um, but the public Dropbox thing... Um, you know, it's good to have it in a discreet location. In Haywood, we have it in bathrooms at gas stations where somebody's likely to inject and use yeah. whatever it is that they're using. Um, so that's probably the smarter way to do it is to put it in a more discreet location. Um, but again, you're going to have no opposition. And these boxes cost like $8, $10 a piece. So if you get 10, 20 of them, put them in locations throughout the county. They're going to get used. And, um, you know, all it takes is somebody like me to spend three or four hours and unlock the place, unlock the box and dump it into a place and then take it to a, you know, disposal site. So these public restrooms that you're putting them in, is it like a private, like privately owned businesses that they get great great access to? Yeah. And some of them are like gyms. In reality, where we see, where I have the most uh, syringes disposed of are in the gyms Mm -hmm. for two different reasons, steroids 
And the second reason, probably the most prominent, is diabetics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a free service for diabetics and uh, steroid users, um, not only injection drug users, um, but yeah. That's cool, man. What was it about this harm reduction line of work that like attracted you? How'd you find yourself doing this kind of work? Um, well, um, I guess to quote Frost, I took the road less, less traveled. Um, you know, I, I found this as an alternative to some of the draconian policies that I experienced as a youth. You know, from 16 to 24, I was in that cycle of arrest, rearrest. And um, <laughs> harm reduction works, arrest doesn't. Arresting people, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. Granted, it might work for somebody, but, um, you know, as a person who has used drugs and gone through this type of problem, um, you know, these are sensible policies that resonate with us. Instead of kicking me while I'm down, I'm, I'm you know, getting a hand up. And that's what I needed. I, I didn't need an arrest. I didn't need more probation, you know, community service. I needed somebody to show me how to tie my shoes, in essence. And that's what harm reduction is about. Does the Harm Reduction Coalition, do they, um, can people volunteer to like help out? Yeah, we have plenty of opportunities to volunteer. Um, sometimes people help us at our fixed locations for syringe exchange. Um, a lot of times people will help us at events by tabling. Um, you know, the biggest thing you can do is be an advocate and go to your community and talk about these policies. Go to your classroom, go to your group uh, recovery group and say, hey, you know, the syringe exchange helped me where I think it's a good idea. And these are the reasons. Go um, to your churches and places that you're. Yeah. I mean, churches, you know, this is the South. You know, the churches, they run they run the show around here. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I, churches have helped me a lot over my life. Um, but these conversations need to be had in environments like churches. And if you look at, say, uh, the Christian mes message, what, what Jesus said, you know, who did he come for? Um, and what was his most important rule? Do, under, do unto others as you would have them do under e unto you. Um, forgive me for mumbling that, but, you know, that was the golden rule right there. And you find that not only in Christian philosophy, but in Buddhist and Tao and, and Judaism, you know, that particular rule, um, do people how you want to be done. Um, that's, that's what needs to be done here is, you know, that Christian message needs to be embellished and lived. You know, look at the words that are in red, you know, look who Jesus came for again. And, you know, these are the people that we need to help. It's our homeless, our prostitutes. It's our people that are dealing with depression and despair. You know, you need to be that light. Um, how many, how much, how many, how many conversations have you had surrounding um, drug users who find MAT, right, and struggle to find a home in a recovery fellowship? Because there's a, t I see a ton of conversations, yeah, um, about abstinence-based programs, and so like I, f I feel like these individuals who do find recovery through MAT, though they may attend a refuge recovery meeting or NA meeting or whatever it is, mm -hmm. they might not feel as welcomed as person like myself who chooses abstinence because you know. Well, it's important to remember that there's different strokes for different folks. Yeah. You know, um, never touching anything again might be the best thing for you. But for opioid addiction in particular, there's a physical dependence. And 
the number one way to get somebody off of heroin, off of fentanyl, is to wean them off. And medicated-assisted treatment does that. Um, it allows for more stability. You're not injecting. You're not chasing a high, chasing a bag all day. All the problems associated with the drug use. So the problem comes in and getting these recovery communities, uh, recovery centers, rehab programs, and getting them to accept it because for so long they've been using this 12-step abstinence-only approach. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If you have somebody in that community who's using methadone, embrace them, open the doors for them. Um, you know, we need methadone in jails, we need it in, in prisons, methadone, suboxone, Vivitrol, those are the three main types of medicated-assisted treatment. But there's also other things. You know, that person might be dealing with anxiety issues. So, you know, helping them with the depression, helping them get on some sort of stabilized uh, neurochemistry level is an important thing to having recovery. So, you know, if you're a person who runs a community house and um, you've got somebody on methadone or suboxone, you know, don't look at it as them continuing to use, but look at it as a opportunity as a tool that helps that person on that path to recovery it's just difficult for the old timers to to see that man like there's been some heated debates within the last few weeks in this local local community surrounding that um and i've seen like many examples of individuals like well we'll 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 welcome them in but i can't sponsor you and like all this stuff and i'm like what's you know well, there's homeless, barriers there's homeless shelters in my community that won't accept you if you're using suboxone yeah yeah you know and it's like wow you know i don't understand that um you know there's halfway houses that won't take you if you're on methadone or some other mat and um you know the science the research it all states that this is a vital tool to curbing the opioid problem um, or any, you know, any drug use problem. These are effective tools to help people. And uh, I guess it's the cliche, you know, axiom, old dog, new tricks. I don't know, maybe, you know, something's built up and it causes dissonance and, you know, they don't want to accept it. But if that's the case, it's important for people like me and you to raise that collective consciousness, to raise awareness and to let these people, service providers, whoever it is, know that, these are effective means to helping getting people off of heroin, off of opioids. Where do we stand with getting these types of assisted treatments into the institutions that you described, into the jails and county jails? And um, it's a process. In Haywood, we've had the conversation with uh, Sheriff Greg Christopher, and he's all for it. You know, anything that'll help. Um, granted, I've gone to other counties who just won't have it. And, um, you know, it, it's a matter of putting that elected official in office. Is it a county by county basis or is it something that we can do county, at a state level? It's a county by county basis. Um, you know, to pay for the funds to provide medicated assisted treatment for all the people that are in jails dealing with opioid addiction, um, we'll probably need another act of Congress, you know, another cures grant or something like that, that puts hundreds of millions of dollars into the state's hands to provide these types of things. Um, but when somebody's in jail, that's the perfect opportunity to you know catch them you know we don't have any type of rehab facilities you might have a preacher that goes in and and dumps the bible which is all good and well but you know it's not giving people the tools that they need to be successful on the outside granted you know that message of being saved and accepting jesus or buddha or you know not accepting it whatever it is you know that can help people but um 
it, it doesn't help them if, you know, physically they're dependent and mentally they can't hold it together. Um, and a lot of these things like Suboxone and Methadone and Vivitrol can help the neurochemistry. They can help the brain functionings. They can, you know, do away with the physical dependence. And what you find with people that use opioids is most of the time they're using not to get high, but to feel normal, to stive off the, the withdrawals. Um, and the withdrawals is the reason that people continue to use. And, um, you know, it just builds up their tolerance. And it's just, I don't know. Um, really what it is, is is going county by county right now and working with places like uh, BHG and some of the methadone clinics and making sure that they have a nurse that will take the substance, will take the methadone and administer it to the particular participant. Even now, like is is methadone and Suboxone accessible to those um, who may not be able to afford it? So it took me a little while to track this down, but we've got 125K in Haywood for methadone. Um, Suboxone can sometimes be a little bit more, um, but there are grants, there are programs. I'm a big proponent of if there's a will, there's a way. You know, if you want to get on one of these types of treatment, we're going to try to find it for you. Um, does it happen every time? No. Um, a lot of barriers exist. Money is a huge issue. Um, and so really what it relies on is, um, you know, proving that these programs work and then allocating more resources for them. Like what, what about this, all this big conversation about Medicaid expansion? Is that something that would be covered? Oh man, that would, that's, that, this is a whole nother podcast. Well, <laughs> that's a wet dream for us. You know, yeah. there's, there's so many services that could be expanded uh, by Medicaid having, you know, Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, a lot of the folks that we're dealing with, um, they have Medicaid and a lot more could benefit from Medicaid expansion because that would take care of most of their medical costs. And the cost to treatment is probably the number one barrier. You know, most people can't afford to go to a rehab. You know, there are free state-run detoxes, but, you know, it's a 37 or seven-day program, most of them. Um, you know, so having the money for these programs is essential to uh, incorporating more people into it. From what I understand, the states that have um, expanded Medicaid and invested money in harm reduction, like what the work you guys are doing, has to have significantly reduced overdose rates and significantly increased individuals finding recovery. And Yeah, um, I'm thinking of uh, Massachusetts, however you say it. Forgive me, Southern boy trying to say it. Um, <laughs> You know, places like New Hampshire where they have something called the spoken wheel where, you know, there's a central hub and then, you know, there's all these different little spokes like harm reduction, medicated assisted treatment. You know, there's all these money, there's all this money being put into these resources and the more harm reduction, the more medicated assisted treatment, the more detox, the more rehab, the more recovery, the more collegiate recovery, the more resources we have, the more able we are to um, you know, grab people and bring them into this fold. Yeah. Well, listen, Jeremy, you're a bad motherfucker, dude. I tell you what, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me. Um, you're super knowledgeable. You're an inspiration asset to this community, man. We need more guys like you out there um, doing the footwork, man. You know, I think I, I really think that though it's not like it's difficult to have, you know, a bunch of you guys out there on the streets and having those personal 
engagement, personal conversations, it's so vital. It's so vital to to the to the community and to the to the well being of our community. Well, it's possible, and you know, when you implement these programs, you find that it's cost beneficial as well. So, you know, you're spending less money on uh, endocarditis infections, less money on trips to the hospital. Um, in reality, having somebody like me saves the community not only lives and, you know, all these positive things, but we're saving a lot of money, too. Cool, man. How can uh, people connect with you? You got an email address or yeah. anything where so, they can? Um, the best way to connect with me is my email. Um, I'll give you my work email. It's jsharp at nchrc.org. So it's jsharp at nchrc.org. I'll go ahead and throw my uh, my work number out there just in case somebody needs some Narcan or if you're one of these communities and you need clean supplies, it's 910-228-7910. I generally make runs from 1 to 5. Call me uh, a little bit before 1. We'll put you on the list. And uh, if there's anything I can do to help you, I will do it. Appreciate you, bro. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it, dude. Thank y'all for listening to NC Raw. Visit our website at www.ncraw.life to subscribe to the podcast. Drop your email address in the little subscription box to receive the show in your inbox every week. Thanks for tuning in. Y'all have a good night. Thank you for listening to the podcast and a very special thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silva, North Carolina for providing this re- recording space to us. The Comfort Inn is located at 1231 East Main Street in Silva, North Carolina. They're also a part of the Choice Hotels chain. Pop in, give them some love. If you happen to be visiting this beautiful area of Western North Carolina, they are a recovery ally and they support community-based organizations like NC Raw. So definitely give them some love. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash NC Raw. For as little as a dollar a month, you can receive exclusive content, behind the scenes videos, early releases on all of our podcasts, but most importantly, assist us in the growth and achievement of uh, opening up our own recording recording space, as well as a recovery kind of community center, a place for people in recovery to gather and support each other throughout this process of recovery because we appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in. Good night.